I'm JG Michael, and this is Parallax Views. Hello, this is Mike Swanson. In a few moments, you're going to listen to another segment of Parallax Views. But before you do that, let me tell you about my new book, Why the Vietnam War. It's a sequel to my previous book called The War State, which has lots of positive reviews and Amazon's been out for years. But this one is a more detailed case study of how American Empire National Security State operate using Vietnam. And I believe it shows also how things work today, how policy is actually made and why. So grab the book on Amazon.com, Why the Vietnam War. This edition of Parallax Views is brought to you by the $10 and above tier supporters of Parallax Views on Patreon. So, with that in mind, producers credit shoutouts to Gunner, Mark, Alexander, Catherine, Kilo, Emilia, Jeff, John, Bert, Brian, Elliot, Michael, Brace, Nick, Merisham. Galen, Arlen, Bo, Gigadelic Media, Chance, Chase, Dan, David, Ava, Bob, The West Bank Robbery Podcast, Jamie, Gary, Max, Ishtofer, James, Martin, Matthew Ho, Brian, Nobody, Thomas, and Dano. And now on to the show. Hey there, Parallax Views listeners. On this edition of the show, the new Arab investigative units, Anas Ambri, joins us to discuss his recent reporting on two rather fascinating topics. The first is the plight faced by Armenian Christians in the old city of Jerusalem at the hands of a mysterious Australian real estate investor and armed settlers. The second story that we'll be talking about concerns the Lebanese security state and spyware. Two very different topics that I hope you enjoy hearing about. So with that being said, let's get right to it with the new Arabs, Anas Ambri. Welcome to Parallax Views, a guest that I'm really happy to be speaking with. He is a researcher at the New Arab Investigative Unit. Uh, He writes for the New Arab. And lately he's been writing some very interesting articles. One that caught my eye was Spyware Brokers and Lebanon's Surveillance State. And also he's been writing about a topic that I'm very interested in, which is the plight of Armenians in Jerusalem's Armenian Quarter. Welcome to the show. Anas Ambri, how are you doing? I'm doing good. Thank you for having me. So, Anas, uh, if you could, maybe we could start by talking about this issue uh, of the, you know, just conflict that has arisen between violent settlers and mm-hmm. Armenian Christians in the Armenian quarter and this uh, investor figure by the name of Danny Rothman. Uh, where do you want to start with this, though? Um, that's a good. Uh, I think a good starting point would be about 
uh, I think July 2021, when basically this deal between uh, the investor in question, Daniel Rothman, also known as Rubinstein, and the Armenian Patriarchate uh, came to light. Um, and the deal was about a piece of land in the Armenian court in old, uh, East Jerusalem, basically the old city. Um, when we found out about it, it was kind of like hushed a little bit within, but when the Armenian community found out about it, uh, they put a lot of effort in trying to raise awareness originally, and then that's how we found out about it. And I think when we looked into it, we're trying to figure out um, the context a little bit, uh, given that East Jerusalem is basically within the occupied Palestinian territories and um, any encroachment there is kind of like a, a big change to the status quo that exists within the city. Um, and what was interested originally was that this was the first time, as far as we knew, of like potential encroachment within the Armenian Corps itself. Um, and uh, to give a bit of context, basically in East Jerusalem, uh, there's been a rise of number of properties that have been purchased by uh, settler organizations. Uh, the most famous one is Atarit Kohanim. I don't know how to say the name properly, but basically um, they're in the process of uh, basically to purchase properties and try to sell their Jewish families there, sometimes in the Muslim quarter. Um, recently, they were involved in this deal with the Greek Orthodox Church um, where they were able to use shell companies as a front to hide the true identity of the company that purchased these hotels. One is the uh, Imperial Hotel, and there's another one, Petra Hostel, I think. And even though the deal was in the courts, was challenged by the, with the Greek Orthodox Church, for over two decades, eventually the Israeli court sided with the settler organization, and there was concern within the Armenian community of something similar happening in this case, because the news originally was that it was going to be a luxury hotel being built in the Armenian quarter. So we looked into it from this two perspectives. Is this really the case? Is it like a genuine business deal? Is Mr. Zoffman really uh, going to build a luxury hotel when it's considered like a UNESCO heritage site? Um, and that's what we kind of approach it from through these two different angles. Do you want to talk about uh, a little bit about who Danny Rothman or Danny Rubenstein is? He's an Australian, right? Uh, so what, how does he get involved in all of this? Right. Um, so we're not, we, we definitely should know that he's Australian citizen. We're not sure if he's Israeli as well or not. Um, but we try to trace basically his, his past business deals. Uh, he's a very, uh, mysterious figure. I think APO at some point tried to interview him and he said he doesn't speak to the press. Um, but we were able to to ascertain that he basically got involved in the tourism industry in Israel in the 1990s. That's when he started. He was chairman of a company there that specialized in the selling of timeshares during the big boom in uh, in the southern Israel. He was also part of an investor, a team of investors that tried to bring uh, Nobu Hotel, which is like this massive uh, chain that was founded by the American actor, Robert De Niro. And he's like, there's this event where he's seen posing next to Paris Hilton and a bunch of, of people. That was very interesting for us. Like that's where we found out like, this is actually a much bigger deal than he actually seems. Um, he's also like had some bad deals in Israel's based on court records that we obtained. Um, he was sued at some point by his own law firm for unpaid fees. Uh, he had to uh, I think he was also sued by like an former employee for like about half a million shekels, which is $130,000. Um, so yeah, there's like a very interesting character 
behind this deal. And most recently, I think there was a case of him being involved in in Cyprus, where he submitted like falsified documents, tax documents, and also falsified documents ascertaining to his academic titles. So for us, uh, we try to paint this kind of picture of a what seems to be a businessman that has his hand in a lot of deals all over the world. Uh, most recently, I think there was even a deal in the Bahamas for like a $2 billion resort. And the goal of the investigation was just to show that, um, I think at the time, the Armenian community was trying to push for some kind of challenge of the of the contract and to show that if that was going to be the case that this person that they're going up against has access to vast amounts of like private capital, which would make an illegal challenge very costly and long. Um, so that gives a, a bit of an overview. I don't know if you had any questions specifically. I also wanted to ask you about what what's, let's talk a little bit. What do we know about the um, company that he's director of? Uh, I believe it's Zana Gardens Limited. Right. So Zana Gardens, um, that's the company which allegedly signed the contract with the Armenian Patriarchate. Um, it's for a piece of land that should cover about 13% of the Armenian quarter. So Armenian quarter is the smallest quarter in East Jerusalem. And it's still a pretty large piece of land, tracts of land in the in the Armenian quarter. Um we don't know much about the company. That's the thing. Um, the company itself is owned by a parent company that's uh, registered in Dubai. And uh, Dubai is kind of notorious for having a kind of secrecy around uh, company ownership data. So we don't have much information about that. But we we're able to trace um, this information back to the company that's based in Dubai, which was only really made possible through like the Abraham Accords, which were signed recently as well in 2020. Um, yeah, there's very little information, which is you know, again, it's a massive, massive uh, red flag, at least for the Armenian community, because uh, this is a kind of common tactic that's used by these settler organizations that try to hide their true identity behind fronts. And then, uh, can you talk about how this land deal uh, actually led to the it led to the defrocking of? Um, I guess his name is uh, Barret. Uh, Yaratsian. Um, could Yaratsian, you talk about? Yeah. He's the director of the. He was the director uh, of the Department of Real Estate of the Patriarchate. Could you speak to that? Yeah, of course. Um, so the, as I said, the land deal. It wasn't very clear what properties were covered. I think within the community, they were speaking about just the cow's garden, which is this portion of land that's owned by the Patriarchate. Um, that used to be a parking lot. It was turned into a parking lot after an agreement with the Jerusalem municipality in 2020. Um, and for for a lot of people within the community, I think that was the original assessment. But then it was later came out that uh, the land as part of the deal would actually cover uh, the fam the the houses of at least five families plus the uh, the parking lot potentially of the St James Convent, which is right across from the Council Garden. Um, so there was even you know concerned there that there's going to be displacements of, of families that have been living there for for generations um especially as the community itself has been suffering from like a reduction of the people living there uh since basically the palestinian israeli conflicts in 1948 or the war i guess i also wanted to talk about uh what is it about this land that that a lot of jewish investors are interested in uh this you know uh, quarter because uh, you note that it's considered prime real estate in Israeli right. eyes. Uh, there's also maybe religious and sentimental reasons, but also political and really even purely business ones. 
Yeah, that's a very good question. Um, it's considered prime real estate because uh, the way the, the old city is laid out, to have access to the Western Wall, where uh, which is like the, one of the, the holiest site in Judaism, um, from West Jerusalem, which is controlled by Israel, as part of Israel, um, you'd have to go through partly the Armenian quarter. So for a lot of people, being able to have this link without having to go through the Christian quarter, as it's considered, uh, would be very, like, have a massive uh, sentimental value. Um, also, politically, um, East Jerusalem, at least uh, as far as I understand, within the the uh, Oslo Accords, is supposed to be a capital for like the, uh, the state of Palestine. So any encroachment there would make it a lot harder to achieve that at least in the eyes of the Palestinians. Um, a lot of Armenians, at least some of the Armenians that we've spoken with, do identify a bit with the Palestinian cause. So for them, this is also like has that massive um, massive meaning there. Uh, but yeah, at the political level, I think when originally the deal or uh, information about the deal came out, both Jordan and the Palestinian Authority opposed it. Um, they uh, retracted their recognition of the Patriarch Manuhian, was the head of the Armenian Patriarchate, um, and that eventually led to the defrocking of Yeretsian, uh, uh, who's now, I believe, is is in the U.S. So this defrocking, I mean, this happened because essentially there's there's the sense that he's betraying the Patriarchate. Um, yeah, my impression is that he he already was not very popular with the community. Um, he was the head of the real estate department, as you explained, and um, he arguably was behind the deal. At least that's the, the version of events that's being presented by the Patriarchate now, because uh, since then, the uh, the Patriarchate has at least announced that it intends to cancel the deal. So since then, Yeratsin had to leave Jerusalem and is now leaving the U.S., um, but yeah, both his recognition has been, I mean, he basically had to be, basically go to being excommunicated from the church, as far as I understand. I want to get into how the Armenian response has evolved over time on this. But before we get into mm-hmm. that, when this, when I was first hearing the news about this a week ago and I saw the Patriarchate's uh, statement, I had some people say, well, what was uh, not above board about the deal? It sounds like the, like what what the Israeli response will be is that it was an above board deal. Uh, why does the Armenian community contest that? I want my listeners to really understand that. Right. Um, well, it seems like there are a lot of elements related to the the deal that are kept secret. So um, this alleged contract that was signed between Anagarden and the Patriarchate in July twenty twenty one. Um, there are still no copies of it that actually have surfaced. It seems that it's potentially not that doesn't even exist. There are a lot of allegations about the people who signed the contract receiving side deals, being part of side deals. Um, and yeah, like it, it, there's a lot of, well, even though there's a lot of backlash from the community, um, the patriarchate has kept the information around this deal very um, tight, and it's very hard to actually even garage if there's like a contract there. Now there was a uh, fact-finding mission that came that contained people from lawyers from the U.S. and Armenia that visited that tried to speak with the patriarch at the time, with the patriarch. Um, they went to I think interviewed the municipality as well, and 
they weren't even able to to get access to the full contract. They only got parts of it, and it was, as far as I understand, it was very difficult to uh, even get get to speak with the with the patriarch. So yeah, like it's the I think the but the issue is that the level of secrecy around this is what um, is frustrating to the local Armenians who feel like they're being, I mean, their lives are being impacted by this. Some of them will potentially completely lose their houses. Um, and it's very important to them because the community is is small, is already getting smaller and smaller by the day. It's harder and harder to, um, you know, live in the Armenian, uh, in the Armenian quarter under, uh, parts of the occupation. So um, this is even more like this is what has been described, I think, in by by the people there as like an existential existential threat is because for them, the more encroachment is going to happen, the like the harder it's going to be to actually keep a good life there. I want to ask about the settler connection to all of this. So Yuretsian, this this uh former director of the the real estate issues for uh, the Patriarchate, uh, he said, you know, people are getting Danny Rothman all wrong. He's a secular Jew. But I, I guess uh, when the Armenian Patriarchate uh, requested to cancel a land lease, Rothman was uh, seen next to armed settlers in the Armenian quarter. Uh, can you speak to the settlers that he was involved with and, and right. how this came about? Yeah, this is the, the most recent development. Um, so all this, like the original deal, um, and like the surface of the information happened, I think over the summer, I think in, in August is when we published our piece about Rothman. But the most recent development is that that we witnessed earlier uh, in November, earlier about a month ago, was that there was this announcement that the patriarch is intending to cancel the deal. I think they announced it November 1st. But a few days earlier, um, bulldozer showed up in the on the on the police land and started digging. And a lot of people within the, the community uh, were were alerted and they have been, I think, conducting a continuous sit-in since then to try to prevent that from continuing. But basically what happened, what seems to have happened is that um, I think it was November 4th and 5th, Rothman himself was seen in the Armenian quarter, probably for the first time. Um, and we, we saw these pictures and videos. He was accompanied by what seems to be between 12 and 15 People, individuals, some of them were, were armed, they had dogs that did not seem very, uh, some of them were threatening. And uh, what we've been able to establish since then is that a lot of people who were accompanying Rothman, at least it seems to be accompanying Rothman, uh, are actually active settlers, were active members of the settler movement in Israel. Um, I think the the one, maybe the piece that you read is about Sadia Heshkop, who is currently, as far as we can tell, he lives in Kiryat Arba, which is like a internationally recognized illegal illegal Israeli settlements in the West Bank. The, and... This is the guy, by the way, that now I, I'm not I, I think people will try to contest this, but he's yeah. known for having an alleged association with Idan Natanzada, the perpetrator yeah. of a, a, you know, what it was a terrorist attack. Yeah, I can I can lay out the evidence there and I can leave it to the listeners to decide. But basically, um, going back, basically, this is in 2005, there was a, a what was called a terrorist attack by the Israeli government at the time, 2005, by Edna Tanzada, um, who was a defector of the Israeli army, he was himself a soldier, and basically he boarded a bus that was heading into an Arab town or Palestinian town and then shot 
basically emptied his rifle in, in the bus, killing four people. I think we did 21 at the time. Um, it was part of this. It was it was called a terrorist attack by, by Ayer Sharon, which was the prime minister at the time. And um, a few individuals Real quick, were... If I, if I could not to interrupt you. Yes. Sharon, when, I, I will give the exact word Sharon used. He yeah. called this terrorist a, a, a attack a reprehensible act by a bloodthirsty Jewish terrorist. Those are the exact words he used. So people don't, you know, just so they know, this is what even the prime minister said. But go on. Yeah. Yeah. I think uh, that's that's a very good point to mention. So just to give a bit of context, what was happening then was uh, kind of relevant to what's happening today is that this was part of the what was called the anti-disengagement um, process where the Israeli government uh, unilaterally chose to leave Gaza and evacuate all the settlements there. And this was seen by the radical settlers within Israel, but also live in some of them in the West Bank as, um, yeah, giving back and ceding on their plans of, I guess, greater Israel. Um, so this was done as a, and I think the individual in question, so Nathan Zada was carrying, I think, a ribbon that was in orange that was seen as, it was a symbol of the anti-disengagement movement at the time. So um, the second individual in question that we saw that was, that was there at the Iranian quarter, um, he was, I think, 18 at the time, Sadia Herzkop, and he was um, put in administrative detention, which is a process that's used within Israel for instances where they just want to put people in jail without having to charge them. It's used extensively against Palestinians. Uh, most people who recently got released from, uh, you know, as part of the hostage exchange were actually put in that administrative detention. So anyway, in this process, um, sadly at the time, Mr. Hashkop was a US, U.S. citizen. So he agreed to finish his administrative detention in the U.S. Um, and there was an interview allegedly between him and members or representative of the U.S. Embassy in Tel Aviv. This is based on a leaked cable. I think it's leaked by WikiLeaks. Um, from a cable where they interviewed him as a way to gouge basically um, the reaction of the Israeli government against this uh, anti-disengagement activities. And um, he was able to recount details about the perpetrator of the attack. And that's said that, that, like according, I'm quoting here, a mere acquaintance would not be able to know or wouldn't be able to, to know about, about the, the individual. So uh, even though Hershkop himself denied uh, knowing the individual, he was also suspected of being a member of I'm going to say the name wrong, probably, but it's called uh, Kach, which is the, this political party. And this this was the party founded by Mir Kahana, who uh, yeah. is a very controversial figure, even amongst Jewish Americans. I mean, he's been called the Jewish Hitler in, in America by the American oh. Jewish community. Yeah, I did, I didn't know about that. OK, um, yeah. As far as I know, he was he founded a political party in Israel and then that was banned from running. And then eventually it was outlawed and considered a terrorist organization by both Israel and the U.S., I think in 1994 and then 1997, uh, because uh, they called a uh, perpetrator of another attack, um, the one in the Rahimi Mosque, and uh, they called him a hero. Um, anyway, going back to Hirschkop, he was suspected of being a member of this organization. And um, yeah, as a consequence, he chose to go back to the U.S. Eventually, we'll be able to trace that he managed to go back to Israel and has been involved in the settler movement since then, not only in Kiryat Arba, but also in, um, I think it's called Ramat Migron, which is basically 
um, settlements that even in Israel is considered illegal, that the Israeli government have been trying to shut down for more than a decade now. And he describes himself as a hilltop settlement activist, which is basically the strategy that's been taken by the settlement movement of taking over the hills that overlook all the Palestinian land around. Um, so yeah, this is kind of, um, we're talking like a very, very radical part of the, um, even the settler movement itself is pretty fringe positions to have. Um, but what was interesting for us, what we found out this link with, uh, it's my bank via who is the current minister of national security. I don't know if you want me to talk about that a little bit. I actually wanted you to talk about uh, right. Ben Gavir because he has been talked about a lot on my show and he's a rather extreme figure. I guess he was very upset with uh, Hirschkopf's detention, even going so far as to call Ariel Sharon's government Bolsheviks and saying, you know, uh, this will not deter us from continuing to fight against our treasonous government. Uh, he's a very unusual figure. He's extreme even by Israeli standards. Right. It was it was interesting for me is that seeing how basically this is a very good example of how like the mainstream position in Israel itself has moved. I should tell a lot to the right that this person who in who was basically joined uh, the movement, the Kahan movement in the 1990s. He was a youth leader there. And that's when uh, I think the quote you referenced was actually taken then. And he's also he made actually his career as a lawyer defending uh, radical settlers. Um, yeah, uh, there's actually a really good piece about him in the, um, in tablet magazine, um, where it actually, the, the author interviews, interviews with the and he actually goes into details about this. Um, but yeah, this link that we were able to establish was because, um, there's also like a mention of him in this documentary called best unkept secret I'm, I'm mentioning it because i'm trying to get a, a copy of it with english subtitles i i know that it exists in hebrew but i'm trying to find it and in this documentary you'll see ben here standing next to a young hirschkopf and a bunch of other um um radical settlers they usually tended to be minors as well because of the way um interrogation happens in israel it's a lot harder to interrogate minors so as part of this group you'd have the uh the miners being sent out to commit a bunch of acts of vandalism and then they would be defended by uh bank fear and yeah i think the uh the most recent link we found was uh from like a celebration of Purim, the jewish holiday in march 2022 where he's seen like um celebrating with uh, with the hair scrap. so i think we're pretty certain that they know each other so can you talk about i don't know if you talked to any uh, Armenians within the Armenian quarter, but mm -hmm. how are how are Armenians treated by these sort of hilltop settlers and the hilltop youth? Do we have any information on that? Um, yeah, I think um, the the persecution of of Christians in general in East Jerusalem by settlers there's a there's a long history already there. I think a lot of people can read about it on our on the Nirab. Um that has been going on for a while. Um, from basically the spitting on on uh, priests and even people passing by, that has been called by Ben Gvir. I'm going to say this because I think it's it's uh, it's interesting, but as a as a Jewish tradition, um, uh, Ben Gvir called that a Jewish tradition. He he yes he as he tried to defend it by saying this is a tradition of spitting. And so I don't know if you've, if you've seen the quote. I can I can send you a link to it. Uh, but yes, um, for them. It's uh, the Armenian community is is pretty tight knit, 
and uh, they take this kind of encroachment very seriously. But I think what was kind of uh, surprising was the fact that this would be a settler from outside Jerusalem coming down to, to town to try to intimidate the people there. Uh, we'll mention, though, that this has kind of spiked throughout the West Bank since the start of the war. Uh, I don't know if you mentioned it already, but like there was settler violence has spiked. There's a mention of, um, I think, seven Palestinians killed at the hands of settlers from the month between 7th of October to 7th of November. Um, this is tracked by Yeshadin, which is like a really, really good organization working on the ground there. But um, uh, what was interesting also talking to the Armenian community is that this was presented to them as as um, armed guards coming to protect the, the property. But for them, they're seeing the Israeli police that's standing next to them. And this is a very common theme in a lot of these settler violence activities is that it would be done sometimes under the protection of soldiers or the police. So it's, it's yeah, it's definitely like they're, I, I imagine they're fearing the worst, especially in the context of, in their mind, I think that the images coming from Nagorno-Karabakh and the cleansing that happened there are still fresh in their mind. So there's definitely a connection there. I don't know if you can answer this because it's speculative, but why do you think there's so little coverage of uh, these issues related to the Armenian quarter? Because I think people know about uh, what's happened in the West Bank to Palestinians, but the Armenian mm -hmm. uh, issue is really not well covered. That's a very good question. I, I, this is just my personal opinion. Um, I think, yeah, it's it's um, it's hard to imagine that this is happening in East Jerusalem. I guess so close um, that it, it it kind of the violence exploded so quickly. I will um, I will mention though that um, at least. The Palestinian Authority and Jordan have been trying to push for this issue to be resolved at the diplomatic level. Um, I think the uh, Jordanian foreign minister mentioned it recently as well, saying like how how are people imagining that Armenian Corps would be like a headquarters of Hamas? Um, so yeah, um, I I wouldn't be able to tell you why I guess, but yeah, I mean this is it's there's there's the the big thing happening, which is the Gaza war and all these things are kind of being put in the background. Just a few more questions with regards to the Armenian quarter. Um, what is currently happening now? Because I'm seeing pictures come out of Armenians saying, first off, we ain't leaving, bro, uh, right. to put it, you know, in uh, blunt terms, you know, crude terms. And uh, they're they're standing in front of bulldozers. So what exactly is happening right now? Yeah, um, I think basically since the, uh, the arrival of the settlers earlier this month, the uh, community has decided to just uh, do a sit-in. Um, yes, I think there's like a tent where they spend in 24-7 their time there. Um, and that's they're really a testament to their resilience, really. Um, my understanding is that they're challenged, they, they're, they're collaborating with the patriarchy to, to challenge the deal in courts. Um, since then, I, I, as far as I can tell, there hasn't been really any kind of flare-up. Um, there was uh, the Israeli police tried to intervene a bunch of times, trying to get them to leave. Um, as I understand, three individuals were arrested. At one point, one of them is a minor, and they were given 15 the uh, restraining order from coming close to the uh, cow's garden. Um, I think that was probably going to continue. That's my speculation. That's probably going to continue. The police is going to continue being called in. Um, on the like as legal front, there's been a flurry of accusations from both sides. Um, 
um, there was an accusation that the now director of real estate department within the patriarchate defamed Mr. Rothman. Um, there was also accusations against the lawyers of the patriarchate of being having conflicts of interest. Uh, this is all stuff that we're trying to look into. But yeah, it's um, it seems that, like as far as I can tell, the settlers haven't come back yet, but we'll definitely be monitoring the situation. I want to be really fair about this too, because you can correct me if I'm wrong on any of this, but my understanding is that uh, these Armenians in the Armenian quarter, th- their problem is really with uh, these settlers uh, who I would say are religious extremists. It's not necessarily that they even have problems with um, others' rallies. I mean, uh, when I had uh, Bedros Thermatosian uh, on, he said that really like uh, secular Jewish's rallies don't really give problems to the Armenian Christians. It's really this group of violent settlers. Is that uh, the correct analysis? Um, I think that's fair, yeah. I think that not only in the Armenian quarter, but in other quarters as well. As I mentioned, the Christian quarter, of which the Armenian quarter is part of, even though it's called separately. Um, as I said, there was that mention of the Atayat Kohanim, the organization that <clears throat> has been known for of, of trying to pursue properties there, but they're also doing the same thing uh, in the Muslim quarter as well. Um, and the, the, the tactic in the Muslim quarter is always try to force the Israeli police to come in or Israeli border police to come in and try to protect the um, the families that are moving there. There's a lot of um, confrontation that happens as a consequence. And as you already know, given the, um, the laws that govern Israel, a lot of these are being, like any punishment is, is very harshly taken against Palestinians who maybe retaliate while the, the Israelis or Jewish settlers are living there are given like a little slap in the hand. Um, so I guess the fear is that the same strategy will be done in the Armenian quarter, which would definitely uh, make it harder for the community to continue living there. We'll move on to your story about uh, this group called Hacking Team. But I wanted to ask, just to, just to reiterate, you know, it, it sounds like there is a fear that you know, what's going on in the Armenian quarter is going to cause actual displacement. Like they're going, there is an attempt to push people out of their homes. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And I will mention before we move on is that uh, something we're working on that we're going to be publishing next week is a different link that we found through other individuals who were present there uh, that points directly to the deputy mayor of Jerusalem. And oh, really? Yeah, as well. Um, like individuals that were present have links with with these individuals. So um, I think that's going to be even more, maybe hopefully, like that's our position is that it's going to be helpful to the Armenian community to see who they're dealing with, to kind of understand in terms of strategy, that's going to be a long battle, uh, at least at the legal and maybe politically as well. I know that article is not out yet, but can you elaborate a bit more on on what people are going to see in that article? Or I... You know, if yeah, you can. I can mention I can mention the the name. There's a second organization. This one is um, almost wholly funded through U.S. based uh, charities that uh, has been known to purchase land properties in in occupied territories in the West Bank and in um, the Sheikh Jarrah neighborhood and try to settle uh, Jewish settlers there. And we're able to establish that. Uh, some one at least one individual who was present there has done basically their bidding in the past in terms of evicting Palestinians, but also 
taking over properties to to have later on Jewish settlers moving. Go ahead. What's what's the name of the organization? Uh, it's called the Israel Land Fund. Okay. Okay. I, I've are, come are across you, that before, actually. Yes. It's it's been mentioned in, I think there's a really good piece about it in The Intercept that shows exactly where they're getting their funding. And uh, yeah, it's kind of was eye-opening for me to see how much of the funding is coming from the U.S. And you said there's a mayor involved with this too? A deputy mayor. So I think okay. in 2020, uh, he's very well known. His name is uh, Mr. Arya King. He was he became deputy mayor in 2020, but he was basically he's the ex-chairman of Israel Land Fund, which he founded, and now he has passed it on to um, to his successor. But he's still involved, yes. And also to reiterate, so from the Armenian perspective, are it sounds like Israeli police are being used to protect the settlers at the expense of the Armenian Christians. Is that the case? Uh, yeah, I think that's already established uh, pattern. I don't. It's probably the first, the first time that's happening in Armenian quarter. I, I don't think that's the case. No, uh, I will correct myself there. There have been many incidents that were reported to the police by the Armenian community, as I mentioned, the spitting uh, on individuals, spitting on priests, uh, spitting in front of the convent, the Saint James convent, uh, attacking. I think, and it's really please just to give context. They have cameras in the entire in the entire Jerusalem, so they are seeing all of this. They have evidence if they want to. Uh, persecute, pe- prosecute people, but they never do. At least the when it when it's clearly done by Jewish settlers in the old city. So for them, this is just like a continuation of the same pattern. Maybe it's a bit of an escalation since it's now taken over people's homes. Now, this other article you wrote, I was very interested in this because I've covered uh, a lot of different spyware and surveillance state stories. You have a story that uh, I believe you co-wrote it with another uh, journalist at the New Arab, uh, Andrea Galodi. Uh, spyware brokers highlight the dark side of Lebanon's surveillance state. Uh, this deals with a group called Hacking Team. What is Hacking Team? Uh, yeah, Hacking Team was a group that was founded in 2003. Um, they have this software called RCS, um, Remote Control System, I think, stands for. Um, they were able to develop this really good technology that's able to um, spy on people's computers. I think it was mostly... Uh, Microsoft. They also had some technology for mobile. And at one point, they were the go-to um, spyware company for countries with poor human rights records. This is not me saying it. This is Privacy International. Uh, it was based in Italy. And I think at the time, Privacy International wrote a letter to the Italian government saying, showing this a track record of that. Uh, there also, there's at least one confirmed case where they sold it to the Sudanese National Intelligence Service. And that was at the time in 2014, it was in, in controversial of the UN's weapons export ban that was done on, on Sudan. Um, so hacking team itself kind of basically became notorious once they developed this technology. I think we even managed to interview a uh, previous executive, a former spokesperson of hacking team, who said that generally they tried to establish the checks, but very clearly, as, as they saw that that technology was way too good, uh, yeah, governments started lining up to buy it. And uh, the company itself got hacked eventually um, by a, a group, an individual, it's not very clear. Uh, they call themselves Finia Fisher, which if people want to look it up, there's a little clip where they're interviewed by Vice News. And there's a really interesting interview where the Phineas Fisher is played by a, frog, a puppet that looks like Kermit the Frog. It's a really good interview if you ever get the chance to. Yeah, it's really, really nice. Um, in any case, uh, coming back to hacking team, so 
eventually after they got hacked, I think it was in July of that same year, 2015, um, the company's stock basically went down and all this leak uh, emails got leaked on the internet. I think it had caused a lot of uh, blowback. I know at least of an instance of in Cyprus, the head of the uh, intelligence had to quit because they had purchased the tool um, uh, kind of secretly. Uh, I'm trying to think if there's other, if if heads rolled as a consequence. But yeah, it was at the time, it was a pretty big deal. And what we tried to do was look into, I mean, we were surprised as well that this story had never been covered before, but we found out that Lebanon, I mean, it was already known that Lebanon had purchased, or the Lebanese army had purchased this tool. The Lebanese army has a uh, military, military intelligence division that does basically is able to, I guess I'm trying to think of the equivalent, but they they, they need the, the use of the tool for maybe uh, law enforcement. And we were able to establish that this uh, spyware broker, a Lebanese national, kind of advertised this tool to uh, two other law enforcement agencies in Lebanon. Other than the Lebanese army, there was also the general uh, security, and then there was the internal security forces. Now, uh, for and for the listeners who are not familiar with Lebanon, the mention of so many different um, uh, law enforcement agencies uh, trying to purchase this tool might come as a surprise, and it is the case because in Lebanon, due to the kind of sectarian situation in the country, these different law enforcement agencies kind of have their own kind of political affiliations. <clears throat> And this creates this kind of like um, doubling of the effort where each different law enforcement agency is trying to get their own sourcing of their their own tools. Um, What was interesting for us was to show that this uh, individual, his name is Kafirali, was able to pocket a pretty large commission. I think it was 30% 30 a commission that he was able to negotiate with hacking team just for the purpose of action as a middleman. He would, although he asked to be presented just as a consultant, quote unquote. Um, and in the case of the Lebanon deal, it was a deal for about $1.1 million. So he got 30% of that. Uh, we were never able to establish that the tool was delivered to Lebanese army, but uh, in all likelihood it did, yes. You talk a little bit more about uh, who this Carl Fagali figure is and what is Road and Shorts? Shorts. Right. Um, we'll, we'll come to Roden Schwartz. Roden is a German uh, company that specializes in telecommunication. They're very well established and they have their tools. Um, one of their tools is um, interception tool. Now, there are different kinds of interception. Interception is just basically trying to collect the information that's passing through the communication channel. And there's you know, a use case for lawful interception. This happens all the time. Law enforcement agencies throughout the world use this. And in cases where they need to um, conduct investigations, they get a court order to go and investigate and look at, for example, messages between two people. Um, and Roger Schwartz provide these kind of tools. Um, but speaking about Ferrali himself, um, what was interesting to me was seeing like the kind of transition or change in the kind of tools he was or products that he was selling uh, throughout the year. So his story starts around the 1990s, right after the end of the civil war in Lebanon, the Taif Agreement, where um ended the civil war, but also established or helped establish um, this position of the Council of Ministers in Lebanon, through which a lot of the reconstruction was done in the country. 
There's also this company, this uh, organization called CDR, that was helpful and kind of basically, um, it was funded by by uh, the US and the EU, giving a lot of money to reconstruct Lebanon, and it was used as a funnel to kind of pass on all these government contracts. And very early on, you see that Ferrelli himself was involved in some of these contracts. One of them was the refurbishment of the UNESCO Palace in Beirut. Um, and other contracts like the supply of surveillance uh, tools, or sorry, surveillance cameras. And eventually, as like the history of Lebanon, the political history of Lebanon changes a little bit for people who are familiar, around 2006, there's a start of the assassinations in the country. Um, he switches a little bit his, his offering and now starts selling um, metal detectors that are used at the entrance of the ministries or surveillance cameras for the Ministry of Justice. And again, um, I can the, the point of the of telling the story is to show how um political connections are used to kind of get gain favors and gain access to these contracts. So uh one thing that we notice is that a lot of the contracts that Ferrari had access to would be done through the Ministry of Justice or um yeah, mostly through the Ministry of Justice with the Ministry of Justice or the Ministry of Culture. And very quickly we can, we can see that this was the kind of the position that the political parties he was affiliated with had access to. And the way the Lebanese system works is that different <clears throat> um, positions are allocated to different sects. There are 18 sects in the country. So for example, the president has to be a Maronite Christian. The uh, prime minister has to be Sunni. And as a consequence, there's a division of all these positions that's done to, the, to different sects. So you'll see, for example, the minister, minister of justice and culture Kafarali uh, was able to have access to all these constructs through it, and it just exposed the kind of political corruption that happened in the country that eventually led to the situation we're kind of in now, at least in my opinion. Um, so fast forward with the story of Kafarali, um, we're able to pick it up again when he gets involved in all this um, surveillance um, tool purchasing for uh, the Lebanese law enforcement agencies. And in this case, he plays this role of a middleman. Uh, bringing in um, these tools and kind of just being part of the negotiations. Um, but at the same time, he's also the, uh, he has an exclusive uh, contract with this Italian um, ammunition uh, company, the, one of the biggest ones in Italy for the import of ammunitions for the Lebanese army. He has all access to all these uh, contracts to, for the purchasing of, of uh, weapons uh, for, for the army. And he, again, this happened around the time where there's an explosion of a need for the army to, to get professionalized, to get better prepared. Um, up until today, where uh, we were able to establish at least that the company that um, he has, a second company called PSEC, was negotiating uh, or at least advertising Arroch Schwartz tools to the uh, Lebanese law enforcement agency. So it seems that the person is still active and throughout this period was able to use their political connections to gain access to all these contracts. Real quick, if you could, because I, I hate to put it this way, but yeah. I think us uh, ignorant American Yankees sometimes do not understand uh, Lebanon or its political scene. I think people in the U.S. often hear Lebanon and just think, oh, yeah, that's it's it's all run by like that uh, militant group, Hezbollah. Uh, and that's right. not exactly the truth. So can you just give uh, briefly uh, an overview of 
the politics in Lebanon and then this security state that you're talking about in the article? Sure. Um, so Lebanon has this, what's called a confessional system, although it's not really written in the constitution, but as explained, different positions are taken up by uh, religious, or not necessarily by leaders from religious communities. Um, and a lot of the uh, kind of power is derived, or the, the, the power that the leaders have is derived from the fact that they can rely on their base, their religious base sometimes, to gain political power. And the system is supposed to kind of work the same the other way as well, as in like the leader is supposed to give you some favors the other way back. Um, and um, yeah, Hezbollah is just one uh, part of this political system. It, it regularly allies with uh, groups that are not necessarily aligned with it religiously for political purpose. Um, so it's just one part of the entire system. Yeah, my, um, my understanding and, is they they yeah. sort of have a a lot of control when it comes to maybe like Beirut and southern Lebanon and things of that nature. But right. yeah, yeah, I think it's uh, as part of the Taif Agreement. They're the only militia that's able to keep its arms after after. So yeah, in in some aspects, they're a lot more powerful than even the Lebanese army. Um, but to kind of explain the connection with the uh, the uh, surveillance system, or I guess the intelligence system, as I explained, all these law enforcement agencies kind of have their own allegiance, and Hezbollah has its own uh, law enforcement agency that's doing its bit in, in a way, and um, it's all like, in a way, like what's interesting to me is like to present Lebanon more of a fiefdom of, of influence, right? It's um, every, every country in the region is trying to gain influence there, uh, including the U.S., and what was interesting is part of this like surveillance system is that Lebanon, while it is being presented, at least in the Arab world, as a, a more liberal place, it doesn't have the same repressive governments that exist in, in the region, in other places in the region, um, is at least used as a seed where a lot of these like repression can happen. Um, it's not mentioned in the piece, but there are many instances of journalists or activists who are passing by Lebanon and being spied on um, because the local law enforcement agencies doing the bidding of foreign governments. Mm. Um, and this is why I think it's it's important to to shed some light on this is because while Lebanon itself maybe uh, will never do the spying, they will kind of be a conduit for it. Um, so just speaking about uh, Hezbollah and its influence on these, I guess, the law enforcement agencies there, um, there was a campaign, a surveillance campaign that was revealed by the EFF Electronic Frontier Foundation, I think it's called Darkarakal, people can, can look it up, where they were able to show that a spine was done all over the world from this building, specific building in, in Beirut that's um, controlled by the general security. And there was spying, I think, uh, countries in Latin America um, as well. So it's not very clear, like, what was the purpose of that campaign at the time? This was as recently, it was still happening as recently as 2022. And um, it just goes to show that like maybe while the country itself might not stretch present or be a, a place for surveillance, it can be a conduit for it. Before we close out, I've covered uh, this issue of spyware and uh, what I would call surveillance state activities uh, for a few years now. I'm, uh, you know, I know you work for the New Arab or have written for the New Arab. 
And uh, they've covered some of these spyware companies like NSO Group, uh, Mm -hmm. which comes out of Israel. How do you see what you're writing about in the Lebanon article uh, as in relation to uh, the broader problem of spyware and out-of-control security states globally? That's a very good question. Um, yeah, I think we we interviewed. Uh, it's there. They mentioned the article, but we interviewed someone who's basically a an expert on the topic who's trying to say, like, yeah, like the only way for Lebanon to build its own um, independence when it comes to to surveillance is to kind of replicate the model of of Israel with with their own uh, spy and um, military complex. And do, it was, do you see it was, parallels uh, between? Are there parallels between NSO Group and the hacking team? Well, hacking team, um, as far as we can tell, doesn't exist anymore. NSO okay. is, is special in the sense that, um, yeah, there were state-sanctioned uh, company that was able to do a lot of of this. And no, I'm not going to go into details what they said, but um, it seems that right now, at least, the Israeli government is trying to rein it in. If maybe you're interested to follow up on this topic, there's another company called Intellexa that's also run by an ex-Israeli um, intelligence officer that's actually now doing more of the damage of going going rogue in a way, and it's selling its technology to a lot of countries with poor human rights human rights record. I think they definitely sold to Bangladesh. That's been confirmed. Um, in any case, um, while I wouldn't say the parallel is there, I think with Lebanon. It's it's still like it's a tiny country. It's like it's about six million people. It doesn't have the same capacity as Israel, but um, as I but said, you're, you're saying interest, th- this expert you interviewed has uh, mm-hmm. said that they have to replicate uh, what Israel has done with some of these spyware companies. Could you speak to that a little bit more? Sure. Um, I think the that was done within the context of how Lebanon would be able to to protect itself. Like it, it must be uh, need to remind everybody maybe that Lebanon still has not. Um, I think I have to double check this. Um, but it's still at war with Israel. They haven't signed a peace deal with them. Um, Lebanon was um, the south of Lebanon up until the 2000s was occupied by the South Lebanon organization that was basically um, funded by Israel. So there's still a lot of animosity there. But um, and the only way basically to be able to match that kind of power that's coming from Israel is to be able to have to replicate it. Now, it remains to be seen whether that's really possible. Um, I, I personally would doubt it. So all of this in a lot of ways has uh, geopolitical implications. Yes, absolutely. Yes. Yeah. Anything else you want to add before we close out? I've kept you about an hour here. I don't want to keep you much longer. Oh, no, it was it was a pleasure to talk about this. Um, no, other than, um, Yeah. Uh, we try to do a lot of work within the New Arab Investigative Unit. We we definitely punch above our weights, and we're just hoping people are interested in uh, what we walk work on. If there's one thing you hope listeners get out of the conversation we've been having, uh, with both regards to the spyware stuff and then the Armenian quarter, uh, w- what's the one or two things you hope listeners get out of this conversation? Um, yeah, I think that. Uh, the, the the Middle East and North Africa, which is the region that we cover, is a lot more complex than the way maybe it's presented to to a more American audience. You're, you're putting maybe... that very diplomatically. I appreciate yeah, that, but I'll you're absolutely right. So I would always encourage people to try to seek out uh, different perspectives that are you know that are kind of 
as long as they're sophisticated and they will put out are worth over three dinner following. How can my listeners keep up with your work and uh, the work of the new Arab? Um, yeah, they can just follow us on, on Twitter. Uh, I'm at, at Anas Embry. Should be hard to find. And the new Arab is, of course, you can just find, the new, I think it's the underscore new Arab. Okay, thank you again, Anas Ambri, for coming on Parallax Views. It was a pleasure. Thank you for having me. Well, that does it for this edition of Parallax Views. I hope you enjoyed my conversation with the New Arabs, Anas Ambri, and that you'll consider supporting my show by way of a monthly Patreon donation. It is you, the listener, that keeps this show going. I have one advertiser, the mighty Mike Swanson of Wall Street Window, but otherwise, this show is entirely listener-supported, and I really need your support to keep Parallax Views going. So, patreon.com slash parallaxviews. One more time, that's patreon.com slash parallaxviews. And with that being said... Until next time, you've been listening to Parallax Views with Parallax Views to Parallax Views with The way out is not simply to say don't do it, just to prohibit. If nothing else, if we don't do it, others will be doing it like great. So, you know, we have to confront the problem. But no, basically, basically, I'm, I know of the great anxiety problems, new forms of control, but it's also new forms of freedom. This is why I always emphasize that uh, uh, internet and all this new digital stuff is a very ambiguous phenomenon, but it's the field of struggle. New forms of enslavement, but at the same time, new incredible forms of freedom. We have to accept the fight with no nostalgia for old, allegedly more authentic communities or whatever. I'm not afraid. I'm not afraid. I'm not afraid. I'm not afraid.